Chapter 16 of The Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 A Night on the Mountain. On seeing the flame signal on the mountain, Woodhull's first impulse was to pile brush on the campfire that the boys might know that their signal was seen. But a moment's reflection convinced him that such an act would be folly as in a greater light from the big blaze it would be difficult, if not impossible, for the boys to distinguish a torch, and he at once decided a torch was the only practical means of establishing communication. In a few words he told the guides what he planned to do. They caught the idea at once, and while Lewis was smothering the fire they slipped back into the woods, where big birches were numerous, and in a few minutes were back with a supply of birch bark from which they deftly fashioned a couple of torches, Meanwhile, the light on the mountain had continued to wink its call. Wink, wink, blank, wink. Wink, wink, blank, wink. Wink, wink, blank, wink, went the tiny light, and Woodhall read the letter C, continually repeated. This was the call for camp, upon which they had agreed in case there should be occasion for anyone to try to signal to camp. As soon as the torches were completed, Lewis seized one and thrust it into the embers of the fire. In an instant it was ablaze. Then, catching up a blanket, he bade the guides follow him and hurried out to the edge of the bluff from which, by daylight, there was an unobstructed view of the old chief's lookout on the mountain. Briefly, Lewis explained to his companions that the short winks of the light on the mountain represented dots, and that if the light should remain twice as long before disappearing— that would represent a dash. In the Morse telegraph code, he continued, the letters of the alphabet are represented by combinations of dots and dashes, and in a few minutes we will show you what a knowledge of this simple code means at a time like this. I want you to hold this blanket up between you so that I can lower my torch back of it. This the guides did, standing so that when he raised the torch it would be well above the screen of the blanket. He waved it back and forth for a few minutes to make sure that the boys saw it. Almost at once there was a change in the winking of the light on the mountain. There was a pause while the light disappeared. Then it began to wink again. Wink, wink, a double-time blank, and then a double-length wink. A short wink and a double-length wink. Those are the letters O and K, the abbreviation for All Right, explained Woodhall as he raised his own torch. Holding it above the screen for two seconds, he lowered it, swiftly raised it again for two seconds, lowered, and at once raised it again for one second. That's two dashes and a dot, meaning the letter G, he explained as he made a double-length pause with the torch behind the screen. Then he began again, elevating the torch for a second, lowering it, and immediately raising it again for two seconds. This was a dot and a dash, the letter A and the two letters used together in that way meant, Go ahead. Again came the signal, OK, from the mountain. Then followed such a complex succession of long and short wings that the guides marveled that Woodhall could make anything at all of them. But to Lewis they were as plain as print, for the message was being sent slowly and with painstaking care as to proper timing. This was the message that Woodhall spelled out. This is you. H is with me. P is lost this side of trail to West Spur. We are all right. Worried about P. 
We'll take back trail at daylight till we meet you. Bring grub. It had been agreed that in signaling the initial of the surname would be used as an abbreviation, so Woodhall knew at once that Upton was signaling and that Harrison was with him, while Plimpton was lost. This was disturbing news indeed. It would have been far less serious to have had all three lost together, for they would have been company for one another, and then, too, Upton was a good enough woodsman not to lose his head. But to have Plimpton a tenderfoot, nervous, high-strung, imaginative, lost alone was another matter. Woodhall did not dare to think what the effects on the boy might be. However, he must not let the other boys know how anxious he felt. Their own anxiety must be heavy enough as it was. Catching up his torch, he sent the following message. We'll start with guide at daylight. Stick to trail till you meet us. Don't worry about P. Nothing to harm you or him. Keep your nerve and try to get some sleep. Start down as soon as you can. Follow trail. The reply was prompt and reassuring so far as Walter and Hal were concerned. Don't worry about us. If it wasn't for P, we'd be having time of our lives. Don't forget grub. Torch going out. Good night. Woodhall signaled good night, and then with a heavy heart followed the guides back to the fire. This was at once poked into a blaze and heaped with brush and light stuff until the flames leaped as high as a beacon of cheer to the two youngsters marooned on the mountaintop. The guide, who was to accompany Lewis in the morning, decided to spend the night in the camp and sent word home to this effect by the other. The latter renewed his offer to give up his hunting party the next day and aid in the search, but Lewis felt that this was not necessary in view of the fact that he would have one good guide with him. Restlessly, Lewis paced back and forth before the fire. Why had he allowed the boys to climb the mountain alone? And yet, was there any reason why he shouldn't have? They were old enough, and at least two of them had had training enough to make them capable of taking care of themselves on such a trip. If only it had been either of the two others who had gone astray. But Plimpton, poor little Plimpton, who had been making such a game fight to overcome timidity, continually accentuated by overwrought nerves and an imagination sensitive to the least impression, what would be the result? Strong men are often panic-stricken at the realization that they are lost, and to the uninitiated a night alone in the depths of the woods, even without the nerve-wracking knowledge of being lost, is an experience often eerie to the extreme. How would Plimpton stand it, he who had gone to pieces at the initiation when he knew that no real harm would be done him? "'No sleep, no good to hunt,' said the voice of the Indian. "'We find him boy all right.' he added in such a matter-of-fact tone that Woodhall was aware of a peculiar feeling of confidence from which there was no cause save the calm faith with which his companion had spoken. Moreover, he appreciated the truth and wisdom of the latter's statement that without sleep he would be in poor condition for the strain of the search the next morning, when he would need to have every sense alert and at its best. So, though he felt that sleep was impossible, he resolved at least to rest, Throwing a few big logs on the fire, he followed the Indian's example and rolled up in his blanket. For a little while he lay awake, worrying over Plimpton. But it was only for a little while. He had had a long, exciting day. The murmur of the river was in his ears like a drowsy lullaby. 
and tired nature lulled his fears. Once he roused and sat up to peer at the mountaintop, a faint glow assured him that the boys had built a fire for the night. A few minutes later Woodhall was lost in dreamless slumber from which he did not waken until the hand of the Indian shook him gently. "'Sun up soon. We find him, boy,' said the latter briefly. Meanwhile on the ledge which had been the old chief's lookout on Mount Tucker, two anxious, weary, and excited boys had worn the long night away with alternate watches, turn and turn about. After parting with Woodhall the day before, the three boys had followed the trail without difficulty, Walter in the lead and Plimpton bringing up the rear. At times the latter had purposely dropped some distance back in order to see if he could follow for himself the blazed trail, always, however, keeping within shouting distance. Once the others had hidden and allowed him to pass them, it had been good experience for him and had given him increasing confidence in himself. Beyond the point where the trail to the west spur of the mountain branched off, the main trail rapidly grew steeper and more difficult. Here the sturdier physique of the two older boys and their greater experience in this sort of work gave them an advantage which they did not at first realize. Their hardened muscles did not feel the strain as did Plimpton's, and the latter was often compelled to stop for a rest and to ease his panting lungs. Eager to reach the top, Walter and Hal pushed on for a considerable distance, unaware that the pace was too much for their weaker companion, and when at length they did not stop to rest, they had left Plimpton far behind. Seated on a ledge from which they had a commanding view of the forest-covered lower slopes, they drank in the beauty of the majestic view while they waited, and some time elapsed before they gave Plimpton more than a passing thought. When they did begin to wonder why he didn't come, it was without any anxiety. They had come over some steep ledges, but nothing really dangerous, and they concluded that he was simply trying the old game of following the trail for himself. But the minutes slipped away, and still no Plimpton. Walter sent the long, rolling yell of the Delawares ringing down the mountain. In vain they listened for a response. He tried it again and again, but nothing but echoes replied. "'There's a little beggar trying to give us a scare,' said Hal as they strained their ears for a reply. He stood up. "'Oh, you Plumpton!' he shouted at the top of his lungs. Still no answer. Now really alarmed, the two boys took turns shouting. Once they thought they heard a reply, but it was so faint that they were not at all sure of it, nor could they tell from which direction it came. "'Perhaps he slipped and hurt himself,' suggested Walter." "'We better go back away.' "'What a mess we shall be in if he has,' said Hal as they started down the trail. Both were more disturbed than they would have admitted, and in their haste and anxiety they forgot to give the necessary attention to the trail. Scrambling downward and every few feet stopping to halloo, they were suddenly confronted by a windfall which struck Walter as wholly unfamiliar. "'I don't remember this,' he exclaimed. He turned to Hal to see the latter's startled eyes, a reflection of his own dismay. "'I don't either,' gasped Hal. "'Can we be off the trail?' A hasty look about convinced them that this was the case. Somewhere they had made a wrong turn, but where, or when, they did not know. Nor had they the slightest idea as to which side the trail lay. They were themselves lost.' For the time being, immediate anxiety about Plimpton was driven from their heads, 
they must find the trail before they could even try to find him. The windfall before them effectually blocked their way in that direction. They must either go back or work their way around it. Walter was sure that they were to the right of the trail, while Hal was equally sure that they were to the left. Both were sure that it must swing around below them. It was therefore agreed that they should work around the windfall and push downward with the idea of cutting the trail somewhere on the lower slope. What neither had noticed on their upward climb was that the trail made many loops and twists and often ran for some distance along the face of the mountain. As a matter of fact, at this point it was directly above them, and in going down they were moving directly away from it. When leaving the windfall, Walter was wise enough to take out his scout knife and blaze their way so that in case they found they were wrong they might regain their starting point, which, he felt convinced, could not be a very great distance from the trail. After half an hour scrambling down ledges and working their way through tangles of down timber, they found themselves in a stand of spruce of larger growth than any they remembered passing through on their way up, and this convinced them that they were moving in the wrong direction. Walter called a halt. "'Look here, Hal,' said he. "'You and I are losing our heads a little bit. Let's sit down and cool off while we think it over.' Pretty scouts we are, running our silly heads off without any idea of where we are running to. It may be that Sister was simply a long way behind us, and by this time he has gone on up the trail. Shouldn't we feel like a couple of jays to have a tenderfoot beat us out, let alone getting lost? Now, this is my idea. Let's get back to that windfall where we discovered that we had lost the trail. I blazed our trail down here so we can do it, all right? Hal agreed to this, and he started on the back trail at once. But going back was a stiffer proposition than coming down, and it took them nearly twice as long. By the time they reached the windfall, they were thoroughly blown and tired enough for a rest. This had to be brief, however, for it was already well past noon, and after the trail was found, there was Plimpton to find. As before, Walter was sure that the trail lay in one direction, and Hal was equally positive that it lay in the opposite direction. The discussion became rather heated, for the strain of their predicament was beginning to tell on tempers. The argument became personal, and sharp words passed back and forth until Walter's naturally sunny temperament and sense of humor asserted themselves. Suddenly, he began to laugh. Two first-class scouts lost and calling each other names because of it. I can't see that either of us has got anything on the other. Say, wouldn't Dr. Miriam be proud of us if he could see us and hear us now? The scowl cleared from Hal's face, and a grin slowly replaced it. Walt, you win, said he. I'm ashamed of myself. I guess this getting lost business got my nerve a little bit. I still think I'm right as to the trail, but I'll admit I haven't a shred of reason for thinking so. It just seems so, that's all. We'll try your direction first, and if that fails, as I'm sure it will, we'll come back and try mine. Walter had cooled down, and while Hal was speaking, he had given the situation calmer study than before. Look here, Hal, said he. When we landed here, we were coming down, weren't we? Hal nodded. Well then, the trail is somewhere up above us. If we go down, we can hopelessly lose ourselves in the big timber in no time. We go up, we are bound to get to the top anyway, and once we get to the top we can find the trail down if we don't pick it up before. We must be over two-thirds of the way up now, 
and we'll soon be out on bare rock where we can see. I move that we stop hunting for the trail and try to make the top. Second the motion, responded Hal promptly. That's the first bit of common sense either one of us has shown. Probably sister is up there now cooling his heels and laughing at us. A shadow crossed Walter's face. I don't know, he replied. It seems as if he must have heard us yelling if he came up the trail. And I think he would have answered unless he thought it would be a good joke to sneak by us. I don't believe he'd do that, though. The upward climb was begun, and within ten minutes Hal, who was in the lead, sent forth a shout. When Walter reached him, he was standing with his hand on a stunted spruce, on the side of which appeared a weather-stained axe-scar. They had hit the trail. At once arose the question of whether they should go up or down. Hal was for going down. Sister may have had a tumble on those ledges we came over and be badly hurt, he argued. I think we ought to go down as far as the beginning of the ledges. If we don't find him, we can feel reasonably sure that he has passed us and that we shall find him on top. This was sound reasoning, and Walter at once agreed. This time there was no carelessness and no trouble in following the trail. The ledges revealed no trace of Plimpton, and the hearts of the two boys were measurably lighter, for each had dreaded what they might find. After vainly shouting for a few minutes, they once more set their faces toward the top, and for the third time that day started over that part of the trail. While still anxious about their lost comrade, the optimism of boyhood did not permit of serious worry, and by the time the top was in sight, they convinced each other that Plimpton would surely be awaiting them there. But he wasn't. The two boys looked at each other blankly. They had been so sure that he would be there that it was with something very like a feeling of personal resentment that they realized that he not only wasn't there, but that he had not been there. Either the little beggar is lost, and if he is, we can't say a word after our own experience, or else he got tired and quit and has gone back to camp, said Hal slowly. If you ask me, I think he has quit. Perhaps he met a snake, and if he did, it's a safe bet that he's hiding under the blankets down in camp now. It may be that he has gone back, said Walter thoughtfully, but somehow I don't believe it. I wish I could. There wouldn't be anything to worry about. But I'm afraid he's lost, and if he is, he'll have to spend the night in the woods, and I don't like to think of it. If he had more sand, it wouldn't matter so much, for nothing's going to harm him. Do him good, growled Hal. It would some fellows, but he is such a nervous chap and goes to pieces so over nothing that I hate to think what a night all alone in the woods and lost at that may do to him, replied Walter. I have heard of lost people going off their heads. I guess we don't get in any hunt for that lost mine. It'll be a hunt for a lost boy instead. I tell you what, let's find that trail down to the chief's lookout. We can probably see the camp from there, and maybe we can tell his sister is back there. Walter's suggestion seemed a good one, and the map was at once consulted for the trail to the lookout. It was found that it branched off about a half a mile from the summit, winding round the face of the mountain. Retracing their steps, the boys easily found the new trail. It led them for some distance over a series of ledges, and finally around a jutting point of rock to the very edge of a cliff of such dizzy height that instinctively they drew back. The path between the rock and the edge was perhaps two and a half feet wide, 
no place for one given to dizziness. Fortunately, both boys were possessed with clear heads, and, as the path was as narrow as this for only a short way, their hesitancy was but for a few minutes. Once around the rock they found themselves on a broad shelf, partly overhung by the cliff, on the face of which the ledge had been cut in some great upheaval by nature in bygone ages. From the edge of the shelf was a sheer drop of several hundred feet. For a few minutes the boys stood lost in admiration of the wonderful panorama spread out before them. There was the village of Tuckerville, just above the falls of the Great Spirit, and there below the white of the rapids in a tiny clearing on the very edge of the river, and in it two tents, which at this distance looked like toys, and very little ones at that. It was the camp. Beyond stretched the forest as far as the eye could see, here making an emerald setting for the sparkling beauty of a lake, and there clothing a rugged mountain almost to its summit. I don't wonder that the old chief spent his time here. I should have if I had been him, exclaimed Hal. Walter was studying the camp. There isn't anybody moving down there, he said. I don't believe that sister is back there yet. Hal, look at that. Hal turned quickly, startled by the odd note in Walter's voice. "'What is it?' he cried, gazing blankly in the direction in which Walter pointed. "'Look at that shadow down there.' "'Well, what of it?' "'Don't you see? It means that we've got to stay on the mountain all night. "'Come off. What are you giving us?' "'It's a fact,' replied Walter. "'I didn't realize how late it is until I saw that shadow. "'Camp is on the east side of the mountain.' and it'll be pitch dark in that hemlock belt before we can get through it, no matter how we may hurry. We're caught, and sure as fate, Hal, the question is, what are we going to do about it? It was true. It was now so late in the afternoon that it would be folly for them to attempt to thread their way through the deep woods of the lower slopes. For a few minutes they stared at each other in dismay. Hal broke the silence. The best thing we can do is to stay right here where we are said he. It'll be cold up here, all right, all right. But the cliff back of us will protect us, and I guess we can get enough dead stuff up to build the fire. Perhaps we can signal Lewis. He'll be nearly crazy when none of us show up. Great, exclaimed Walter. It'll be light on top for some time yet. We'll get busy and see what we can do for firewood. We passed some birches back near where the trail branched and I'm going back to get enough bark for a couple torches to signal with. I've got a roll of herbwurst in my pocket, and I guess we've got enough water in our canteens to make us a couple cups of soup. We've got a few hardtack left and some raisins, so I guess we shan't starve. If it weren't for Plimpton and the worry Lewis will have, this would be a lark. Enough dry wood for an all-night fire was soon picked up and dragged to the lookout. Walter made the torches and then cooked their frugal supper. By this time it was dusk. In spite of their sweaters, they began to feel the chill of the night air. They did not want to light their campfire, however, until after they had tried signaling with the torches. So they sat where they could look down toward the camp and waited. Gradually the darkness below thickened. The camp, the village, and the forest faded from view. Only the patch of white which they knew to be the falls remained to give them a sense of direction. One by one the stars came out. The darkness crept swiftly up the mountain and enveloped them in a great loneliness and a vast and solemn stillness. 
They thought of poor Plimpton alone, probably in the deep woods with nothing familiar but the friendly stars, and instinctively they crept closer together. Staring down into the black void, they saw a tiny point of light appear. "'It's the campfire!' exclaimed Walter. "'When it gets a little bit darker up here, we'll try the signal.' The result of that experiment has already been told. It was strange how that winking light down below banished the lonely feeling. As soon as they had signaled good night, they started their fire. And but for their anxiety for Plimpton would have thoroughly enjoyed the novelty of their experience. The cliff at their backs reflected the heat from the fire in front of them so that, though they were without blankets, they could keep quite warm. Each took his turn of two hours at feeding the fire and watching while the other slept. And so the night wore away. And in the gray of the morning, they prepared to take the back trail to Meadwood Hall. End of chapter 16